1: My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Sam Stetzer at his home in McMinnville. It's uh, August 10th, 2023. Thank you so much, Sam, for joining us today. Uh, First question is, why wine? Uh, Yeah, Um, so to go to the beginning,
2: um, I was born in in West Virginia, but my parents, I was raised on a farm in southwest Pennsylvania just a. Stones throw from the West Virginia border and my parents were back to the lander hippies. They uh in nineteen seventy two they bought a hundred acre property in Appalachia for seventeen thousand dollars and um kind of uh my mom was from the suburbs of Pittsburgh and my dad was from the suburbs of Philadelphia and um They decided just to sort of check out and do their thing in the hills and um, they had my brother and I and so we we had a herd of cattle and small orchards. We put up hay, um, grew a lot of different things and didn't really make any money from it. Uh, We never really had much money. I saw my mom's tax records from those years and um, you know, the most I ever saw them make was maybe $7,000 in a year. But we were never really wanting for anything. You know, we made our own dairy products and raised our own meats and, and everything. And um, There were no words for the kind of farming they were doing at the time. Um, you know, organics or regenerative or anything, but they were really practicing all of those things. Um, they learned from the locals how to farm and they learned from, you know, Firefox books and some of the sort of resources that were kind of out there and there wasn't really money to bring things in from the outside. So you know, uh, I grew up shoveling the, the stalls from the cows and spreading it out in the fields and, um using what was available in a closed system. And um, now I think they would call it regenerative farming or some of the nomenclature that that exists, but um, they weren't doing that. And <clears throat> my dad became, was a part-time mailman, rural mail carrier. And my mom eventually went back to school and got her teaching degree. And they eventually got like real jobs in the farming side of it kind of became less the herd got smaller and stuff but um, and then my brother left for college and then I left and um, the farm's still there but um, not really actively farming it Um, so anyways I grew up in that setting of Appalachia and both my parents being back to land or hippies they had a really large group of people that kind of all went out there for cheap land and jobs in the there were uh, abundant jobs in the coal mines and barges running coal and stuff which attracted a lot of sort of young people who wanted to live country life and have these relatively well-paying jobs um and but they were all fairly well educated and stuff like that and um so i had a group of friends who were the kids of all these people but we also sort of lived in this community that didn't really value education and um, a lot of the things you associate with, well, Appalachia. And so I could not wait to get out of there, um, I think, in high school. And I was a bit of a chameleon. I could get along with just about everybody, but I kind of felt like I didn't really belong in that culture of um, big trucks and racism. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of those things. So I couldn't wait to go to the city and sort of discover more worldly kind of things. And so I ended up going to school in, at the George Washington University in uh, Washington, D.C., which is about as urban as it gets with college. And my mom had gone to school there, so I kind of had that primer. And uh, so I kind of went the opposite, kind of the extreme opposite of of that my youth um and they did not have an agriculture school at GW um <laughs> but I had bigger dreams and um just wanted to be away from country life and farming for a while and uh but it was a really expensive place to live and go to school and my family's not a family of means I had a lot of financial aid which helped but um, the cost of living was really high And I ended up working in uh, high-end restaurants to sort of get by. And that was kind of my introduction to, first introduction to people enjoying and appreciating wine. Um, As a kid, we had a lot of uh, family, friends, and people that made wine at home out of whatever they could get their hands on. Um, Just sort of, you know, nobody was going out and buying fine wine. and I always sort of was fascinated with that culture um, and so just busting tables and working as a bar back and doing things and I saw people ordering it and appreciating it and kind of got that and then eventually I started uh, waiting on tables at some pretty high-end nice restaurants that had extensive wine lists and and I was so green and I remember like the the head bartender sort of sitting me down and giving me the, the the lesson and sort of like pulls up a map of France and he talks about Bordeaux and Burgundy and, and, and it was just like I had no clue, no clue about wine um, I could barely name some varietals you know Cabernet or Merlot or anything like that and, um, got a pretty good lesson pretty quickly about it. Um, and so yeah, we got through school and um, I had a degree in international affairs which wasn't going to get me very far. Uh, but I had this dream of sort of managing, I had a concentration in international environmental resources. And I was heavily involved with the environmental groups at school. and. Um, uh, was taking internships at, uh, big NGOs that were based in, in DC that dealt with environmental resources and, um, and so I had this dream of going abroad, particularly Central America or South America, and helping manage, uh, you know, their, their resources that they had available. Um... But I was terrible at office work. I hated it. I took these internships at uh, several big organizations and I just didn't have the um, ability to sit in front of a computer and um, concentrate and um, really do the monotonous work that it took and spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff. Um, Because I was raised on a farm (laughs) <laughs> um, so then uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, who you met a little bit ago, uh, who, who went to school with me too, we uh, moved to Portland on a whim. Um, I had some friends from here. and We heard it, it was a cool place to live. I had never been to Oregon. And we bought a used Subaru for my dad and loaded up all our worldly possessions and spent a month driving across the country and landed in Portland and thought we were going to conquer the world with our new uh, Bachelors of Arts. And uh, that was 2004 and the economy in Portland was really bad at the time. It was really hard to get jobs when we got here. we were applying for pretty entry level jobs and competing against people with masters degrees and and stuff and uh so after like delivering phone books and kind of just applying to everything we could and getting nothing uh i i threw in the towel and walked into some restaurants and applied for some jobs uh, swearing i would never do that again And I got a job at Wildwood restaurant in Northwest Portland, which um, at the time, you know, the food scene in Portland was really getting started. And um, that was one of the first sort of really uh, high-end places that was selling uh, Northwest sort of inspired food and they had an incredible uh, wine list. And so I started learning a lot about Oregon wine through that, and um, tasting a lot of wine. I got to meet a lot of prominent Oregon people. Um, I remember, you know, meeting Patty uh, Patty Green and um, and uh, other people that would come in to eat or sell wine or whatever, and. Um, I remember one time, Josh Bergstrom's sister came in to sell some wine, and I came up to her and I said, "You know, I really love Bergstrom, and I'd really come, love to come out and like help out at the winery. Is there something I can do?" And I remember she just gave me Josh's cell phone number, and I was like, uh, "Give my brother a call. I'm sure do something." And I did. I went home and I called him, and I'm like, "Hey, man, like." And he was really cool on the phone. He was like, yeah, well, harvest is coming up. We, you know, you come out and help sort fruit or something. And I'm like, that's it. I got it. Like I'm in the business. (laughs) And uh, he's like, yeah, I'll take your number down and I'll just call you when harvest comes along. And of course he never did because it's like least of his priorities. And I I didn't even have the wherewithal to be like, you know, he's probably kind of busy. I should just like give him a call at harvest. I never did, and and it came and went, and I was like, well, blew my chance. Um, and sort of that that ran its course, and we just kind of got sick of waiting on tables and ho-hum jobs in Portland and um, and I actually like ended up losing my job there because I just got really i'm a, I'm an introvert. You know, the sales thing, it just isn't really, I think I was a decent, you know, server, waiter. Um, but after a long time of just sort of waiting on people, I got really just jaded. And uh, and it got to the slow season, I pissed some people off and they were like, yeah, you gotta go. And I was like, yeah, it probably should. Um, at the same time, a friend called and he's like, come on the road rock climbing with me. I was really um, getting into rock climbing. And um, so traveled around the country for a couple months rock climbing. My girlfriend, now wife, went to Asia to work on some organic farms. And, and uh, we kind of got back together. And then if we were gonna move back to Portland, not really excited about it. And a friend said, come to uh, Western Colorado and work on a peach farm, harvesting peaches. And we're like, sure, what else are we gonna do? So we, uh, at this point we had a 1995 mercury sable I inherited it from my grandmother. Uh, and we converted into a, a car that we could live out of, tore out the back seats and made a platform to sleep in. <laughs> and we, we went on the road rock climbing again and, um, and then landed in Palisade, Colorado, working on a peach farm. And we did that for a little bit and the farmer really liked us and he said, stay here and um, help us with pruning. And we're like, okay, where else are we going to go? And we did that. And then um, there's just, you know, a small grape and wine industry there. And I was really, really into wine at that point, really just fascinated by the process and everything. And I was making home wine at that point, and. Um, and after doing the peaches for a while, I was like, this is, this is fine, but um, I'll stick around if I can work in, in wine. And the owner was like, fine. And uh, So we went, I just went down to the, the neighbor's property. Um, he had a f- few acres of vineyard and I knew he was managing vineyards for another guy. Knocked on his door and said, can I get a job? And he was like, sure. And started working for him for six fifty an hour and couldn't have been happier. Started on my birthday in February of 2006. And just digging ditches and whatever needed to be done. Just working out in the vineyard, moving wires, everything. And it was like the happiest I would ever been. It was like my dream come true. And uh, pretty soon he was impressed and he bumped me up to $8 an hour. And at the end of the year, he decided he was gonna leave that job and take another job and the owner Came to me and said do you want to be in charge <laughs> i had never sprayed i'd never done some of the sort of stuff that you needed to do to run a vineyard and it was 30 35 acres of vineyard um, but i was clueless and uh he gave me a raise to 12 dollars an hour and again i was like i'm really like stepping up and uh, it was just me and a couple couple you know spanish-speaking guys my Spanish wasn't very good and, and learned a lot about powdery mildew and all the things and just tractors would break and we didn't, he was really cheap and didn't want to pay for anything so I would just figure out how to you know replace an alternator on a tractor and it was just an incredible way to learn because I had to just figure everything out and um and, and that it was just such a great place to live. Um, you know, I could get off of work and go rock climbing or biking or, you know, it was right on the Colorado River. It was such a beautiful place to live. Um, it was really affordable at that time. and um, It was more about living than, than working. Um, but the winters were really cold the growing conditions were really tough, uh, there'd be a lot of winter freeze, you'd have years where you'd lose half your crop and it's like, well we're not making money again this year. Um, I didn't really have the resources available, even at that time I knew you know, the right equipment. I didn't have anybody to call really when I had questions. Um, I knew there was a lot of things not going right, um, but I just plugged away. and um, in the winters, again, I would wait on tables to kind of make, make ends meet because you couldn't work for like two months, it was just too cold. You couldn't start pruning until February or March. Um, and one year I decided to, that I would go to New Zealand. Um, I got a job working on a vineyard in Hawke's Bay, the Gimlet's Gravels, uh, And I just wanted to experience like a real wine industry. and just be a tractor driver you know take orders instead of giving them and that was an incredible experience Um, working with them they had never brought in an outsider before Uh, this place called Matariki which uh, has since been consumed by one of the big wineries it doesn't exist anymore the label at least Um, and uh, just Me and some Maori folks and some locals who had always worked on the vineyard and really hard-drinking, hard-living Kiwis uh, who really took me in and it was a pretty wonderful experience. And to see what it's like to work on a 160-acre estate vineyard, how it's done. And there were parts of it that were great, parts of it that were not great. and, and just learned a lot. And I think part of it I learned too was I need to move on from Colorado, for one. I'd kind of outgrown that position. So after five years of working there, um, I started thinking I wanted to come back to the Northwest. I'd always sort of dreamed of coming back to Oregon, but at that point my skill set was like Rhone and Bordeaux varietals, hotter climate, high desert you know I was like that's what I know like Pinot Noir and cool climate growing is so foreign to me it's not I don't really know and I also wasn't really excited to come back to the rain um, and so I, I took a trip up to Washington I made some contacts and went around uh, I I toured around the Seven Hills vineyards and stuff and they were like willing to offer me a a job, and, um, and then I came down here and met with some folks, uh, the contacts I made, and um, I met, I just walked into the Adelsheim tasting room and said, can I talk to the vineyard manager and I ended up sitting down with Chad Vargas, um, who I actually am co-workers with now. But at the time, they were looking for, uh, like, a vineyard liaison um, and sort of offered it to me. And then I met with Advanced Vineyard Systems, and they ended up offering me a vineyard manager job. Um, And then in Walla Walla, that was kind of the job I, I really think I was best suited for, but they had a really bad freeze that year. And they were like, we don't have any grapes to farm so we can't offer you a job so i ended up taking the the uh avs job um and moved up here and that was i moved up uh march 1st 2011 and um it was pretty eye-opening um for better or worse because it was i got here and they were like this is the coldest spring Oregon had had to that point you know it was the latest it had gotten above 60 degrees in a year and it was like the wettest March they said they had ever recorded I think it rained every day except for one in the month of March and uh, I had never cane pruned before like a lot of sort of the spring practices we do here um So they didn't want to just put me in charge. So they said, okay, you got to just, you're on like a probation or something for like three months. Or maybe that's the wrong word. I wasn't in trouble. Uh, But, you know, like a trial. And they were also like, yeah, we're going to pay you $13 an hour. And you got to just put in your work with the crew for a couple months, for three months. So they just dropped me off with a, a... contractor crew, just tying and um, pulling brush, all those things day after day. And it just rained day after day. And my uh, girlfriend was still in graduate school. She was uh, in a a social degree grad program at Smith College in Massachusetts. And so I was like on my own with my dog in a shitty house with like roommates, and it was raining every day, and I was doing this really tough work. I couldn't keep up with the crew because I didn't know the work, and they would just be like, What is this dumb kid doing in our crew? Um, and I was like, That closed the pack in my bags and going back to Colorado. Uh, but I stuck it out, and and they were happy with me, and they said, "All right, now you're you're ready to sort of take care of some vineyards." And um, those guys did a really good job farming. Um, I I learned a, a lot in those two years with AVS, and it was a really good introduction to some nice vineyards and and stuff. But um, um, it was all sort of like planned out f- for for you as a as a as a manager, and I kind of wanted to have a little more freedom to farm the vineyards and um so after two years um I had sort of been talking to to um kevin chambers um who I knew pretty well and uh sort of telling him that I was ready to to make a change and um, he suggested to the guys at RP to to talk to me. And so I, I met with them and took a job with RP results partners. Um, Luke Padotti talked to me and they um, had just taken on a lot more acres uh, really quickly. They just took over uh, Domain Serene and um, like in one year they had added a thousand acres to their, their farming and so they needed some help. And at that time in Oregon, it was really hard to land vineyard jobs. We were still kind of, you know, that 20, 2011 to 2013 kind of period, we were still really kind of coming back from the recession and it was pretty stagnant and um it's it's hard to imagine now with the last couple of years the labor situation and how hard it's been to get helped and um there weren't a lot of vineyards being planted and uh, grape sales were pretty stagnant um so i was pretty excited to, to get that and rp it was a little bit of chaos at first because they took on all these acres and they didn't really have the organizations situated at that time to for that explosive growth and that was a really good learning experience to find out what it's like to work for a really rapidly growing organization that didn't quite have it worked out and everybody was trying to do everything everywhere at once Um, and So they put me in charge of the organic and biodynamic vineyards, the spray programs at first. And so I learned a lot about, because I didn't really have too much experience with organics and biodynamics. Um, So I learned a lot about um, putting out the BD sprays, um, organizing, keeping on top of fungicide sprays, learned a lot about um, powdery mildew and botrytis um and then they put me in charge of a lot of fungicide spraying the next year i was in charge of spraying so many vineyards and i didn't really enjoy that um i didn't really like the compartmentalization which was kind of in those days what rp was doing they were really like this guy's in charge of labor and this guy's in charge of uh tractor operations and This guy, me, in charge of like a lot of the fungicide, the spray programs and stuff. And I didn't want to just be like spraying vineyards. Like not physically, I was managing all these people and just keeping the rotations going and stuff. Um, I wanted to be like a vineyard manager and I told him as much and um, So then the next year, for the first time, they created this position. They gave me a group of kind of more higher-end vineyards that wanted more attention, and they said, okay, you are in charge of the vineyard crew, the tractor operators, the budget, all of the sort of things, um, which didn't really exist there, and it was a lot better. Um, I really enjoyed that, and I got to work with some incredible vineyards and it was funny cuz uh some of those vineyards I was in charge of were Bergstrom's vineyards and I thought back to back when I had talked to him and uh and now I'm like managing his vineyards and I was like oh this isn't what I thought it would be but yeah there's was a lot of pressure managing a lot of high end big vineyards and it was sort of just a, a lot to take in um, but I learned an incredible amount um, and I think after it was four years that I worked for results partners I I really think I was feeling burned out um, you know they had me being a vineyard manager but I wasn't uh, what they called a client manager I wasn't sort of I wasn't the boss and uh, i didn't get to make a lot of the key decision making I was more just kind of following the orders and i didn't have like an assistant so it was just i was just i just felt like i was managing so much and it took a a big toll and in those days they would allow the guys to work as many hours as they wanted so we had a lot of guys working 14-hour days consistently or um, you know six seven days a week and um, I was starting a young family I had a new baby um, and my wife who you know didn't work in the wine world and just really always sort of stressed out or worried for me that I was kind of consumed by my work and it's when you have even if you're not working those kind of hours, if you're in charge of a large group of people, and I would put my phone down on the counter and try to go have dinner or take care of the baby or whatever, and, and you come back and there's five voicemails on your phone, and this is you know, 6.30 at night. And the least you can do is provide that tractor operator, crew leader, supervisor, whoever it is, the information they need so that they can work the next day or whatever it is and so i'd have to excuse myself going to another room make all these phone calls and it's just sort of never ended and i almost kind of had an ultimatum of this is you cannot continue to do this um and so i had like kind of tentatively sort of put feelers out there for other jobs and um not not many, and I think that uh, I probably would have been content just continuing to do that for a very long time. That's kind of my attitude of putting my head down and just working um, and not complaining. Um, and part of the philosophy there, you know, they had this saying like, you know, act like a duck. Up above the surface, just all calm, but below the surface you're paddling away like crazy. And uh, I thought that was like a good philosophy until I had a, I think I had told a therapist that that was like something that I had done and she was like, that's the worst philosophy I've ever heard. (laughs) Just push it way down and uh, pretend that everything's okay. Um, and so one of these feelers I had put out, you know, had suggested to somebody that I was sort of floating out there, like potentially looking and, um, and that's when Atlas Vineyard Management reached out to me and said, would you be interested in talking? And after, um, several conversations, I decided that it was probably time to, sort of move on Um, and I did so I started working for Atlas and um, it did I sort of you know got my weekends back and it was a lot calmer and Atlas was relatively small uh, when I jumped on in 2017 we're a couple hundred acres and it was a it was a really nice change of pace as a smaller team um, and the vineyards were a little easier to manage Just a few large vineyards, Um, and um, worked with um, Lauren Eisold and 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 the vineyard team with Atlas. And then um, once she moved on in, I believe 2019, I took over um, as the regional manager. And um, it was my first time, sort of just. Being in charge, in charge, and we've sort of steadily been been growing, and we went from a few hundred acres to to where we are today, which is um, eighteen hundred or getting close to two thousand acres under management in the Willamette Valley. Um, so that's how I got to where I am and, and my title now is director of
1: Oregon operations. That's quite a path. I, yeah. have, I have lots of questions. I'm going to go back. Uh, I want to start with uh, kind of arrival in Oregon for the first time around uh, Portland, 2004. Tell me about your initial impressions of Oregon and of, of the wine industry as you started to learn about it.
2: Um, portland in 2004 was like it was uh, i feel like it was the golden age and uh, it was a magical city Uh, thinking back of it back to it um, and it kind of set the stage for where it's at now it was so cheap Um, we had i I ended up there partly because I had a really good friend who I had done a, I had done a study abroad program in college in Barcelona, Spain. And it was through, it was coordinated by Portland State University. Um, and so a lot of the kids in the program were from Oregon. And so a friend of mine, Jamie, um, we told her we are moving here and she said, oh, we live in this great building and um, we were just driving out and she talked to the Building manager and he's like, oh, yeah, there's a room and i called him. He's like, yeah, Jamie says you're cool It's all good. We didn't fill anything out. We just showed up. The door was unlocked. We moved in is this historic building in the Laurelhurst neighborhood and uh, 500 bucks a month and um, It was fantastic and it was so livable uh, there were just like artists and musicians just flowing into town because it was so cheap and um, it didn't have it had sort of the hipster thing going but pre the pre Portlandia it didn't have the stereotypes of it and now when I go back it's it feels like every neighborhood has the artisanal ice cream shot like sort of the same neighborhood you would see in Berkeley or A hip neighborhood of Seattle or Boulder you know um, it's kind of like a cookie cutter sort of impression of what it used to be Um, and it was like it felt like a big town it didn't feel like a city you could drive across to anywhere in town in 10 minutes and we would bike everywhere and um, it was just a really really fun place to be and at the, the restaurants that I worked, or particularly Wildwood, it was the wine industry seemed so accessible, people coming into the restaurant. It would be the winemakers or their, you know, immediate next person coming in, displaying their wines and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. um, and the few times we'd come out to wine country and they'd have, you know, their special pouring weekends and stuff and you'd come out and it'd be the owner pouring the wine. and. Um, It felt great and we did a, um, we had our honeymoon in 2008 in Sonoma and Mendocino. And I had never been to California wine country. And I had no interest in like Napa or the big, big, big industry coming from Colorado. uh, I wasn't quite ready for that kind of step. And I didn't want to be a cog in the wheel. And I knew if I came, they would just be like, okay, you're in charge of, um, you know, buying chemicals for this vineyard, or something like that. Um, And even like Mendocino, we went to Anderson Valley, which for Californians is like on the edge of the universe. Even that was like, I went out there and we talked to people and they'd be like, oh, this used to be like diverse here and now it's just wine. I don't it's just, it didn't feel right, and, um, Oregon felt right. It was just that right amount of stepping up from, like, a tiny cottage industry. Um, and so, yeah, that was my impression of Oregon wine
1: at that time. So when you went to Colorado, you obviously you had you had done farming, you had a farming background. When you started working with viticulture specifically, tell me what's what was what did you need to learn what was what was unique about viticulture versus other types of things you had grown and places you had worked um, I really liked the
2: connection to place um, I really just found the culture of wine at the time really fascinating that you could taste a wine and you know alcohol like being a solvent and just pulling out every little flavor you could from that and just knowing that I could taste the character of a Colorado wine. Um, and uh, not a, little, a lot of other sort of forms of farming had that kind of detail mm-hmm. to it. Um, it. It was the romance of it at the time that really pulled me into uh wine. And the farming part, just, you know, growing up on a farm, it's like, you wake up and you just know there's stuff to do and you just do it. And, you know, my parents, there was never idle time. Like you just did something and then you would go do something else and then you'd go do something else and then you'd go do something else. And my parents never stopped. Um, and so I think that's what I was good at. And I still say that to to this day. Like I just... The other day I had a talk with our um, sort of viticulture interns who were here for the summer from various schools. And I had a talk with them about operations and kind of the business of what we do. And um, like the, the vineyard management model and kind of my advice to them and everybody else is like, put your head down and just work, show up on time and be reliable and that'll get you pretty far in life. And so that's what drew me to the farming side of it, is like, I knew how to do that. And um, I don't think I'm a particularly great worker. You know, my wife would probably criticize me for saying that or sort of, but I think I've been really good about showing up consistently on time and just putting my head down and working. And it's gotten me pretty far in life. Um, so that's what kind of drew me to the farming part of it is like the thing I was good at because in farming, that's most of the battle. Rather than like an office job, like, a lot of office work, you know, people do just clock in and show up and you sit there, but it's not gonna advance it. You need to like show, (laughs) uh, you know, your work. Um, And so I think wine sort of helped me come to terms with the farming. It's, you know, because I still had in my mind that I was not gonna be a farmer. I was not gonna sort of do what my parents were doing. And you know. But wine kinda added this new element to it that added like culture. It added culture to this rural agrarian thing.
1: So with wine specifically, you mentioned kind of your education in wine being coming through a lot of, a lot of restaurants and, and things like that. Tell me about learning the world of wine and and getting to the point of of understanding sort of uh, on an educational level, uh, how, to, how to understand wine, how to sell wine, how to know wine.
2: I could not sell wine. I, I would never be able to sell wine. <laughs> I take that back because I guess in Colorado in the winters and stuff, there was just nothing to do. And so I would start, I did some like repping wine, um, for the winery I worked for. The winery I worked for was, uh, out of Boulder, Colorado. It was called Bookcliff Vineyards. And so we grew the grapes on the Western slope near, it was near Grand Junction, kind of close to the Utah border. And, um, this very sort of specific, um, unique area where you could get away with growing vinifera um but then we would truck the the grapes over the mountains four hours away to boulder where the wine would be made and they had their channels sales channels there they would taste uh tasting room and would sell to denver and boulder restaurants and wine shops and stuff like that but had really no presence on the western slope where i was so you know for need of work or boredom or whatever and also to change it up I would start um, going around to restaurants and I was actually pretty good at selling wine I think it helped that I could be kind of the the working man walking in these guys deal with distributors and stuff like that and they liked hearing my story and just seeing like a really earnest young kid trying to sell wine and I did a pretty good job at that but I think if I had stuck with it or made that my sole focus the same thing would happen that happened to me working in restaurants where you get really dull and numb to doing the talk and um, like a lot of jobs I guess in general is like the passion at some point the passion wears off or the romance of that job you know I always say that Every job is really exciting for a couple weeks. Um, after that, you need to find something else to kind of um, keep it up. Um, and I think now that I've been in this industry for whatever it is, 18 years or something, that the, the marketing side of it um, feels so unappealing to me. Um, that I'm pretty content to just be in the vineyard doing my thing Um, and even the winemaking side of it it, I don't know just sort of that thing that initially drew me to the industry has really worn off a lot you know that sort of really that fascination with wine Um, and at this point I honestly don't even like drink a ton of wine I've been in it so long I can talk the talk but I don't really enjoy um, just talking about wine styles um, that thing I've really sort of moved on to the logistical aspects of farming grapes and the people that do it And it was really hard on me when I took over uh, sort of the leadership role that I'm in now that I didn't have those connections to like the winemaking community that my, especially my predecessor did. She was really good at um, making those connections and um, I, uh, I didn't really have that, I didn't put myself out there, and it was really hard on me, you know, because it is a big part of my job, the networking and being connected to the movers and shakers of the industry. And I really, like, told myself I need to work harder at that, I need to put myself out there, I need to make those relationships. and. As I move through it, I've realized that it's really not that important. It's more important to let your work speak for itself. And I did sort of, you know, eventually come to terms with that. I said, if I put my head down and we build a really great vineyard team, we do really good work farming vineyards, people will notice. And um, it's kind of a a long-term game it's sort of like i'm not selling my personality i'm selling um, the work that we do and it takes years for that to get noticed um there's with with vineyard farming um, it's probably less immediate you know with wine making you're staying in front of a Group of distributors or whoever you're trying to sell your wine to, you're pouring the wine and they either like it or they don't. Um, in some ways, that's a lot more
1: immediate. Now, the the hard part is consistently doing that. That is a long term game. I'm curious. Before we talk we delve kind of more into the vineyard side of things, you mentioned that you sort of made some home wine at a at, at time. Tell me about the, that process for you and what you sort of took away from making your own wine. <laughs> uh,
2: I learned that it's easy to make okay wine. It's really hard to make like good wine, especially consistently. So if you're a home winemaker, I mean, and and I learned that it's no surprise, but the devil is in the details with winemaking. Um, and any winemaker can probably tell you this, but. Making wine at home with whatever tools I have available, like red wine, you can get away with a um, pretty minimal, but you know I'm not I'm not a super detailed person. I'm like, let's make a good, quick decision and move on. And so I wouldn't track temperatures really well or um, you know, the additions that I need to make topping a barrel um filtration you know just all the things and you would just sort of like do it and hope it turns out fine and um and for a while I would just like scavenge whatever grapes I could get a hold of and that was fine and I managed um fair vineyards for several years and was really close with the owner Mike McNally um, who was really wonderful and he would be so gracious for the work that I did and at the end of the season or during harvest and he would give me a half a ton of grapes and he'd be like it's the least I can do for the the work you do (laughs) and it was like very valuable and stuff and but it'd be harvest and I would like work you know a 16-hour day and then I was like trying to get it processed and do it all like in my garage and I made this wine and it turned out beautiful but I think it had stalled you know a couple bricks and uh, it's like fruity and delicious a little bit of sweetness but it's like I didn't cross flow you know I didn't whatever I just like bottled it and called it good. And uh, and I was like even giving bottles to friends and and family, like really proud of it. And sh- sure enough, like six months later, you open it, and you're like, it's a little funky. I don't know. And you see where it's going. And I've got at this point, like twenty five cases in my garage. I expended the energy to bottle it and everything. And it was gar- it was undrinkable. and it sat around for a long time. Finally, my dad was visiting, and we just like, took it out to the dump and just hucked all these cases of wine into the dump. <laughs> and so there was a lot of that and um and when i moved back to oregon i started realizing i had a allergy to especially oregon pinot noir um the histamines or um really affected me, and I'd have to take an antihistamine if I ever drank it, and it got to the po- gets to the point still. You know, if I drink, a, if I try Pinot, I have to take allergy medicine, and if I drink like a normal amount, like two or three glasses of it, like I don't sleep well, it, it really messed me up to the point where it's really made it hard to enjoy drinking it and so i just had all this wine piling up in my garage and not to mention that when you're managing vineyards people give you bottles and and stuff and i wasn't drinking it and i think my wife was finally like why are you doing this why are you making wine you don't drink it it as i was giving it all away which is great people love receiving wine and um Nothing makes me happier than making other people happy. Um, so I I enjoyed that, but that's ultimately why I stopped making the wine. But it was really helpful to understand more about the process, and I have worked in um, wineries to a certain extent in Colorado. I would go help in the winery in New Zealand. I did some work in the winery there, just enough to know that it. I didn't want to do that side of the industry because there was at the beginning sort of that question in my mind: Do I want to go in the wine production or the vineyard work? And God, pumping and pressure washing and just being inside in a winery all day and and winemaking is um, mostly that, and um, it's like long. It's just monotonous and boring, (laughs) Um, and I think a lot of people, the romance of it or whatever is you think you're going to be, you know, displaying your wines to people and people oohing and aahing over it, and um, there is some of that, but it's mostly tedious.
1: So you mentioned as you were kind of setting out back in Oregon, you you had some options. You had you'd met with Adelsheim and you had advanced vineyard service and you were thinking Oregon you are thinking Washington. You hadn't narrowed down yet. What made you choose the role you did choose? Why did you choose to go with a vineyard management versus working for a specific brand? Well, I wanted to manage vineyards um,
2: and it kind of, I had to make a decision and talking with Chad he was kind of like with your experience you should probably just take the AVS job like he pushed me and I wasn't like I said it was really hard to get jobs then and um, and so basically that was all that was offered to me I didn't know what a vineyard management company was I would have been more than happy to take a job at an estate vineyard if it had been offered to me but I didn't have the connect I didn't know anybody um, I was just sort of like wandering into like, I came up here and it was winter and I just sort of wandered in to tasting rooms and be like, is your vineyard manager around? Can I talk to him? And, and they would like say, hey, how you doing? Like, you know, but he was the vineyard, like, why would they need a vineyard manager if he was the vineyard manager? <laughs> and, um, and I went into OVS and talked to Kevin Chambers. Kevin Chambers had been, had come to Colorado we had our little grape growing organization had put together a talk of various people uh, to talk about organics and biodynamics and he and his vineyard resonance vineyard um, were deep into biodynamics and he was featured in voodoo vintners and um, these sort of things and he came and did a talk to us and uh, during the break I went up to him and I said hey like someday I would love to come back to Oregon maybe and can I look you up and he was like great yeah and he gave me his card and so I went in and talked to him and he's like yeah okay well good luck you know there's I don't know of anything um but yeah it's an interesting sort of path that it took me on um that I landed with a vineyard management company because now all of my experience in Oregon has been vineyard management companies and um The business model is pretty unique. You know, it's ubiquitous in California. And, um, but certainly where I came from, it was like such a foreign concept, custom farming. And um, it kind of takes a certain manager, a certain kind of personality to persist in this business. It's so different than farming in a state vineyard and really challenging you have to really be willing to just go all the time and it can be really stressful and it's much more business than an estate manager who gets to focus on just the farming and uh, You know, I have a ton of respect for the managers out there that really get to dial in on how the plant processes silica or, you know, um, sort of the phenology and the academic parts of it. That's not who I am. I don't have a degree in viticulture or agricultural sciences. My farming experience is feel and um, figuring things out and making it work. Um, Growing up on this farm in Pennsylvania, it was very DIY. Like, no one, my father never had an agronomist come out or never, you know, he did all of his own electrical, he would split a tractor and replace the clutch if it needed to be done. Um, We just didn't have the money and it never sort of like dawned on us that that's what you would do. Um, And that's kind of how I am now. Like I think about within a, a vineyard management company, how can we make this work? That's mostly what I do with people the equipment we have how can we be efficient um, and we have a viticulture team who can tackle a lot of those sort of really granular questions and stuff but um, our focus is making, making this work for our clients and so much of it is financial and so um, as kind of the, the leader of this group, um, our office is how do we make this as efficient and lean as possible with maintaining quality? Because I know full well that our services are not cheap. Um, and if we're not, if it's not working for our clients, they're not going to continue to use us. Um, so that's that's a lot of what my focus is now, and um, after doing this for so many years, like farming a an estate vineyard, I almost feels like a retirement option for me. <laughs> <laughs> after just being bombarded for so many years, because. I have so many bosses, I've got all of our clients, we have close to 70 clients now, and all of them are my bosses. And then our main office is in Napa, California, and I have those bosses there to deal with, and I'm answering to all of these people, trying to keep them all satisfied, and the pressures of that, of. Having a viticulture team and we have a big admin team and all of our vineyard managers and um, you know the emails and the phone calls and the gratification in the vineyard management model is that every year we have the opportunity to to shine or not shine. If you're not doing a good job at the end of the year you get fired you know the our clients have a lot of options and um and so if you're not doing a a good job you you figure it out pretty quickly and if you're doing you know a good enough job you get to keep your clients at the end of the year you continue the next year farming their properties and if you're doing I think a really good job you pick up a lot of work so there's this sort of annual gratification or you know scorecard of the job you're doing um, and it's always evolving. We get to work in every sub AVA um, and now you know we're farming conventional and organic and biodynamic and regenerative you know all the things we get to do. Um, and we we have different needs and wants from every client. We get to work for small wineries, big wineries, um, investment groups, private landowners, some who are heavily involved, some not heavily involved, um, just the diversity of that work and development work like I love building vineyards. It's probably the f- my favorite thing to do and Um, we keep adding sort of things that we can do, you know, we're now doing heavy ground prep, so we're renting really large equipment and doing our own clearing and things like every year, hopefully we can keep adding to that arsenal. And just now I've been in the industry here in Oregon long enough that I get to see vineyards well, into production, that I was involved in the development and planting and everything, um, and seeing it come full circle, and really taking pride in that. And um, the idea of having like a fixed asset on an estate vineyard where it's year after year, and I kind of what drove me crazy in Colorado is like just seeing the same, getting to know every vine that well and driving every row so, so often with a tractor and all the things. And for some people, they really thrive on that, being able to really get granular and improve that one vine year after year is really sad and it is satisfying. And I like to see our vineyards um, evolve. But like, I like going in all the different directions and seeing how that that works, you know. But the flip side of it is it can be really demanding and really stressful. And when I talk to my friends who are estate managers, they cannot imagine how I do
1: what I do. Let's talk a little bit about that. You mentioned clients having ne- nearly nearly 70 clients. Um, tell me about. Warning to work with that kind of variety of sizes of, of involvement levels of experience levels um, Where do you how do you sort of find that line of what you can offer? Uh, what they need and and sort of Keep your sanity, I guess. How do you how do you find what you where that's that sweet spot is?
2: part of it is like keeping my sanity, but my sanity sanity is really tied to the sanity of our team, our office, what our vineyard managers can handle, um, what our equipment can handle, all those sort of things and also where you are in a place and time in the company and so right now we've got an incredible amount of work um, ahead of us and the benefit of that is you can be more selective and so in slow times you're kind of willing to say yes. And so we had a leadership meeting with our whole team in California a couple years ago. And uh, my coworker Shane and I kind of sat down and we talked about sustainable growth. And what does that mean? And part of it was my experience at RP during that time of extreme growth, I kind of learned what I didn't want to do. Um, and I didn't want to repeat that, of saying yes to everything, which is really tempting in our line of work, when you get a phone call just to always say yes, and you'll figure out later how to make it happen. Um, So, you know, I get a lot of phone calls from some rich guy in Westland who wants two acres, a vineyard in his backyard and so learning to say no right off the bat to those sort of things or um clients with reputations they've burned through three vineyard management companies you can kinda tell where it's going you know so we made a list of kind of our ideal clients like um, not ideal clients Um, I don't really want to give you the list because we have both that we're farming right now <laughs> Sure. Um, and just trying to
1: really focus on the kind of work that we want to do how have clients changed in the time you've been working with clients obviously you've been working with clients for, for a while how have the how have they changed are, are they asking for different things now? do they have different expectations Do they have different amount of knowledge
2: um, yeah, so, I mean, the, the industry has matured a lot just in the time I've been here, um, which is a lot less than other folks. Um, costs have changed a lot. When I started here in 2011, you know, a ton of Pinot Noir was roughly $3,000 a ton. And today, it's roughly $3,000 a ton. So the cost of grapes hasn't really nudged that much in part because yields have gone up. The average yields per acre, people have sort of done that. Modern farming, spacing, irrigation, all those sort of things have influenced that. A lot of vineyards have gone in the ground. Um, wine sales have sort of steadily increased but not at the pace that uh, grape production has gone up. Um, and then uh, also in the winery there's a lot of things they can't influence as far as Costco. It's it's really hard for uh, the marketing teams and, and the winemaking teams to influence you know what distributors expect a bottle of wine to cost Um, if you try to nudge your bottle price up the distributors just go somewhere else there's plenty of people to take that shelf space Uh, you can't really influence uh, the the price of glass or labels or corks or any of that sort of stuff one of the things you can control are your grape prices. You can negotiate your contracts with the growers.
1: And, um,
2: and we've had so many years where it's kind of tough to sell grapes and you kind of just have to take what you can get from, from the winemakers. Um, so that's been really challenging. So there's more and more emphasis on the cost of farming as the growers are really struggling to get the revenues that they want um, out of selling grapes and most of the people we work with are in the business of selling grapes which is increasingly a tough place to be in Oregon um, if you're not completely vertical you know selling wine and the cost of labor and diesel and all that stuff just keeps going up and so what I've been really focused on is how to make it work for these guys because like I said if, if it's not working for them they're not going to continue to use us mm-hmm. so we have to make this economically viable um, and so we've been really focused on Um, mechanization, you know, machine harvesting, we fleet of all the mechanizations, and that's where a lot of the management companies shine because, you know, mechanical deleafer, it can be $35,000 for one implement that does nothing but pluck leaves off of a vine. And it goes on a tractor that costs $60,000, $65,000 or more. So that's $100,000 in equipment just there. Um, We have two machine harvesters that cost $400,000 each. We have two mechanical planting machines that are, um, you know, it's a couple hundred thousand dollars each. And so it's increasingly harder for these smaller vineyards to mechanize on their own and they, so they really rely on us to be able to move that equipment around. Um, also the scale of the labor we can maintain labor year-round and um, so we've been able to ho- slowly uh, become less reliant on labor contractors which I'm not a fan of using you know and, and um, I think a lot of the people running the labor contractor companies are kind of the underbelly of the industry Um, and I don't really like treating our workers as widgets which is what a lot of these labor contracting organizations it is you know you call them up and they show up with 50 people uh, van loads of people and you'll see them for a couple weeks and then you're done with them and you'll never see them again you know you can't learn names, you can't learn faces, and um, it's really an awful way to treat people. Um, So we've been, with the scale that we are in the other companies, we've been able to sort of bring internal labor, we hire them directly, they work for us, and um, that allows us to pay them a little more, we're not paying a middleman to sort of bring us people. they know they can talk to me or anybody else. Um, So trying to change some of those dynamics. And then, the back to the economics of it too, is you know, we've seen the struggles in um, labor that we've had and trying to incentivize people um, to be more efficient and um, so being able to do more like piece rate work and bonus structures and finding new ways to make it work financially for these clients um, who increasingly it's, it's very financially driven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and also trying to adjust the way that we've traditionally farmed I think in Oregon the old style of Oregon farming and, and is, you know, Pinot Noir being a very finicky vine and wanting to collapse and trying to change trellis systems to make it easier to farm without necessarily compromising um, quality, Um, getting Oregonians more comfortable with mechanization, Trying to find ways to not do things that traditionally have been done when I started, shoot positioning was really intensive and still is in a lot of places, especially in the North Valley, um, in the higher end places and trying to see like getting away from shoot position, heavy shoot positioning, um, the hot years that we're having and um, you know, maybe seeing if we can get away with less leaf pulling, Um, and so a lot of the logistics of farming is what I focus on. Um, and the business side of it more and more every year finding ways that we can make this work for people. The other thing is also just um, Just big business moving into Oregon. I'm sure a lot of people talk about that. You know, we were really behind, like, say, California and Washington on seeing the big players come in, and now they're here. And um, the conglomeration of industries, and, you know, honestly, like, I'm part of it. Atlas Vineyard Management, we've sort of consumed a few small management companies and now the big players in our business is results partners and us. And there's still a number of small management companies. Um, And also, you know, on the vineyard side, we're seeing just one vineyard after another being consumed by larger operations. We're seeing a lot of outside investment, investment groups um, dealing with them which is really interesting a lot of the work I've been doing is dealing with capital groups and investment groups and it's really farming by um, accountants and um, so it's just a lot of numbers and writing a lot of cost estimates and um, a lot of meetings to talk about cost estimates and um, really really tracking So we have a, um, and that's why a lot of these big companies like the big companies like us because we have a deep bench of financial analysts and we can provide those variances regularly and the numbers that go with, um, with farming. Um, And so that's been a big push away from sort of um, casual farming, you know, the owner living on site or whatever coming out and saying it looks good. And that's like all you need. <laughs> um, and just really, really staying on top of costs and numbers and those sort of
1: things. Uh, tell me about uh, building and managing a team. How have, you, how have you gone about sort of building the team under you and, and, how, you, and how you manage them and what you look for and sort of new, new hires? I like to surround myself with people like me,
2: I guess. Um, I pride myself in knowing a little bit about a lot of things, and those are the kind of people I like, kind of a jack of all trades, and not necessarily specialized. Um, I like people who care about their work. I think that's one of the most important things. Um, I don't necessarily want somebody that's super knowledgeable but that they care and they'll eventually get there. Mm -hmm. Um, And reliability and people willing to learn new things. And the nature of our business is that we're going all the time and everyone has to pull their weight. Mm -hmm. And if a a piece is not working, it all kind of falls apart. And so I'm really hands-off with the other managers, my co-workers. Um, I'm not a micromanager. And I've got enough on my plate. I don't don't need to be checking in on them and their vineyards. I will if I start getting phone calls or if, you know, the other managers call me and say, I need to deal with this situation. Can you help me out? That's kind of where I step in. Um, So our organization organizational structure is there's you know five of us kind of at my level who manage a group of vineyards um, so I manage directly 400 and some acres and we're all kind of in that um, field some of them have it have smaller acres but more vineyards um, you know sometimes a a seven acre vineyard is just as hard to manage as a 140 acre vineyard. Um, um, and then so we each have those and then we kind of have our own specialties within that so I'm kind of the quarterback of the team and just making sure everybody has what they needs. I'm finding the labor that everyone needs. and kind of putting out fires as they come up. I do a lot of the dealing with our California ownership and stuff. You know another guy he sort of does the new business handling kind of keeping track of the new business. Another guy sort of manages the development work. Um, And then um, another big part of what I'm doing is um, you know Atlas as I mentioned part of the thing is sort of acquiring other companies um, which can be advantageous rather than organically picking up a whole bunch of new acres um, because you're acquiring their people that's kind of the impetus really um, as much or even more so than the acres that come with it because it's really hard to find good people. but also it comes with their own culture which can be really challenging you know I've sort of described it as you know when the Normans invaded England they expected everybody to speak in French you know right away and that didn't work out and it's kind of the same thing that we take these companies and they've been working under assumptions of how to farm a vineyard how to record their time how to the, um, organizational structure works, how viticulture works, how their spray programs are and all these sort of things and, um, so a big part of my job is kind of steering them through this and eventually, hopefully, we can get to a point where we're all kind of on the same page. And I've never worked in California and even though we're a California company, um, none of us really come from the and it's very different how they operate down there, obviously. And um, so I think we are uniquely Oregon, um, but we do have a certain way of of doing things. So I've been really hands off with those companies, but they still need a lot of guidance um, because now we're sharing equipment, we're sharing people. and there's always this manager that doesn't like the way that this manager does it and trying to get everybody to get along. Um, And so, uh, fortunately, bless her soul, my wife is a therapist by trade. And um, I've been privy to a lot of therapy just within my marriage. And... um, outside and stuff and she loves to process and um for someone like me who's an introvert and kind of pushing everything down as hard as I can it's really challenging but she's really kind of made me step into that and it's been really really helpful in my job because I am constantly getting barraged with complaints I uh, don't know, maybe the wrong word for it, but just issues like human resource kind of issues when you have 250 employees and it's so everybody's just stressed out and going as hard as they can and dealing with all these things coming because I'm not the only one dealing with all this stuff I was talking about earlier. Everybody's dealing with it. And um, as sort of like the buck stops here guy, I'm the one left hanging with it. Um, just, you know, putting the tailgate down in a vineyard and sitting with somebody and just tell me what's wrong and hearing people and a lot of what I do is just listening. People just, I think at the end of the day, want to be heard and know that somebody's listening and you're not going to fix the problem, um, but reassuring them
1: that I'm here and I hear you, and um, it's hard. Uh, you talked earlier about sort of the, some of the changes you've seen in clients and, and in the industry since you've been here. So tell me about where the industry is headed, uh, where you where you see it going, and maybe what some of your hopes are for what what comes next for the Oregon wine industry.
2: I hope that it gets easier to farm. <laughs> Um, the labor situation, I hope that the great market kind of, I hope it improves. Um, and it's hard cause we're continuing, you know, it's good for our business to plant vineyards and stuff, but we keep planting them. Um, and a lot of these investment companies and stuff are really looking to make money on the tail end and also the scaling of vineyard operations. Um, which is no different than almost every farming industry and we're seeing it across the board in blueberries and hazelnuts and grass seed and sort of talking with all these people that um, you know the margins are getting tighter but there is still a margin there and if you're smart about it and good enough you can capture it but um, if you're making a thousand dollars per acre in profit you know, a 20-acre vineyard that you've invested a lot of time and energy and capital into, it's stupid. You're making $20,000. But a large investment company who can plant a lot of acres, you know, can kind of squeeze it out. And they're also focused on five years out when they can sell it at the end of it and get their big return. And so that's the way a lot of the industry is um, going. And... Um, I think, I think we've got a tough time ahead of us, that we're holding steady and we're doing a lot better than some of the other growing regions. Um, but there's a lot of hand-wringing in the wine industry globally, mostly in the U.S., domestically I think, um, just about the consumption of wine, the favorability of wine, especially in the fighting varietals. Um, We're in a lucky position in Oregon. Um, So that's tough. Um, Climate change is a a real issue. Um, These seasons are just really tough. It's like almost every year we're battling these insane heat spikes or smoke or frost. you know kind of one thing after another and we're just like perpetually you know there's always next year it's kind of our mantra um and a lot of our vineyards do not make money and it's hard to see a point where they do um and i can't tell you how often i meet with people about estimates and they say well i'm not really in it to," you know i know i'm not going to make much money and that's fine they're retired people or they made a lot of money somewhere and, you know, they just want to be hobby farmers and pay us to do it. Um, I say, that's fine, but how are you going to feel about losing money for 10 years in a row? And so that's, I have really frank, honest conversations when I meet with people on site and talk about the realities of what's ahead of them because they don't, generally do the research and stuff. Um, and on paper, if you get this yield at this price, it, it should work out. Mm-hmm. But it very seldom does. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's tough. I really care about the the people I work with. I want to make sure they're happy and being compensated. I have a I think um, through the years I've sort of become more cynical about the wine industry in general, and you've probably heard this from a lot of growers. Um, There's that big disconnect between the marketing and winemaking side of it and the growing side of it. And I think it's a lot starker in the vineyard management company model because we're kind of, in some ways, the dirty secret of the wine industry it's a very humble position or there's. you can't get into what I do hoping that you will be praised or, or whatever, like, you know, we won't be named in marketing materials, um, you know, we're there to get the job done. Mm-hmm. And when you contract anybody, it's almost sort of purposely to make a separation between you and and that thing and um, if something goes wrong you know you're quick to be blamed if something goes right um, the winemaker gets to take all of the credit and we really lean on armies of low-paid unknown workers Um, and until like that revenue to cost of farming thing equalizer, equalizer becomes more equitable it's going to be really hard to pay people and if we pay people more we get complaints about the farming costs and if that happens we get fired and we're not farming anything and another company who pays their people less come in um, and do it and so I understand you know the financial pressures on the winemaking side of it and I know a lot of wineries don't make money, too. And um, uh, we gotta uh, find a way to pay these people more and make it more
1: equitable. What about for yourself as you look ahead to the future? Anything uh, on the horizon personally or professionally that you're looking ahead to? You know,
2: just continuing to build a good team, continuing to find ways to balance work and life. Um, To me, work is not the most important thing and I think in this industry it's really easy to get consumed by the wine and, and the vineyards and it's the most important thing in the world and you have to keep reminding yourself that we're just making this luxury item for people of means um, we're not saving the world um, and It's been a challenge and one of my challenges in Oregon, you know, coming from Colorado is like just living was a. in that industry in general, people worked to live. Um, You know, you worked so that you could pay for your hobbies, um, which were really important. And here, Uh, where I live in McMinnville which is a wonderful town, it's great but like recreation is not important. Our county commissioners are actively opposed to (laughs) recreation it seems Um, and it just doesn't seem as important to people and and in the Oregon wine industry people tend to be really consumed um, by wine as the primary focus so um, As I mature, I try to sort of find space for my family and living Mm -hmm. and and enjoying life. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's what I'd like to do. Um, Just getting to a point where our team is redundant enough and powerful enough that it doesn't just fall on a few people. Um, and making sure the quality of life for the people I work with and everything is um, continuing to be good, mm-hmm. which has been extremely challenging with um, the last couple of years and the labor situation and sort of how that goes. But as it as we grow, it get does get more complicated too. Mm-hmm.
1: And last question for you. uh, What is your biggest accomplishment today? What are you proudest of? (laughs)
2: Um, My children. um, Very proud of them. Um, Proud of just the life that I've been able to build for myself, the comfort, how far sort of I've come when I started in this industry. I never dreamed that I would be where. I am now, as I mentioned, seeing vineyards come to maturation has been really enjoyable, um, and just the the team that we've built here. I'm extremely proud of them. You know, when we get through harvest and just just seeing how hard everyone digs in and gets it done and just puts in. 16, 18 hour days, seven days a week to get through it and um, at that moment like I couldn't be prouder of the people I work with Um, and like I genuinely appreciate them and respect them and and just have a lot of love for all those guys um, out in the field.
1: All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, Anything I didn't ask that I should have, anything that we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? I think that's it. (laughs) Covered it all. All Excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time, sharing your stories with us, sharing this beautiful space with us. We really appreciate it, and we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank 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 you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast.